Christ, the sure and steady anchor. In the storms of life and in the perils of life, he never fails. What a gracious, great truth that is. And that's really what the Apostle Paul is wanting us to see in this ninth chapter of Romans. That, that our God is a mighty God, our God is a powerful God, our God is a sovereign God, our God is a God who cares and protects all those who are His. And, and sometimes we kind of get lost in the old saying, you don't see the forest for the trees. Sometimes in passages like Romans 9, you, you just don't see the forest for the trees. I had somebody one time, I won't say when, that might give off a signal, but I, I, I had someone sometimes say, why do you preach on those Calvinistic verses in Romans 9? And uh, my answer was, I could be wrong, but I don't think the Apostle Paul ever read Calvin. That was supposed to be funny, y'all. I, I, think, I think sometimes we want to we want to systematize things so much and pigeonhole them and place them in a system that, that we, we do miss the forest for the trees. We, we miss seeing what God is trying to show us and what try, God is trying to do in our lives because we get so caught up in peripheral matters. And, and when I look at chapter 9, I look at what the Apostle Paul is saying to you and me and saying, this is something you, you dearly need to know. This is something you clearly need to understand not for intellectual gain, not for intellectual knowledge, but for godliness. Because the whole of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, in my opinion, is given to us for two purposes. First and foremost, to glorify God. And secondly, to purify us. To glorify God, and as we see His glory, to be purified, sanctified, made holy by His sovereign work within our lives. And so when you come to things like chapter 9, I, I think we sometimes get so caught up in how, how does this affect my neighbor or how does this affect how I see somebody else. Or how do I, and we fail to see what is this trying to teach me about what God has done in my life and how I can greater glorify Him through it. I think that is the important question to always ask when we come to passages like this. I read the whole chapter last week. I'm not going to do that. We're going to mainly focus on verses 30 through 33 today, but we're going to also kind of do a little bit of a review because I want to remind you of a few things that Paul is doing here. Paul is looking at a group of people who are saying, wait a minute, Paul, the Jews, the, the Israel, the nation of Israel are the chosen people of God. He said that in, with Abraham, he said that with Moses, he said that with, with every one of the patriarchs throughout the Old Testament. And now you're coming along and you're saying that there are some Jews that are not going to be saved. You're saying that there are some Jews, some who are physical descendants of, of, of Abraham who are not going to be in the, in the new covenant community. And Paul said, that's exactly what I'm saying. Well, well why is that? How can that be? If that's the case, one might say, one might object to Paul and say, then God has failed, hasn't he? Has God failed in his promises to Israel? That's what he's dealing with in, in verse 6 of chapter 9. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. It is that the people have failed. 
You see, Paul always sees God's sovereignty and, and man's responsibility in a perfectly balanced understanding. Paul never says that, that man is not responsible, every man responsible for believing, for coming to faith in Christ, for trusting Christ. But he never shies back from the fact that God is sovereign, even in the case of salvation. God is sovereign, man is responsible. That's throughout all of Paul's writings, that's throughout all of the scriptures. And we cannot miss that. We, we, we cannot choose one against the other. Tonight, I'll, I'll quote this in my class on Spurgeon. Uh, you know, someone asked Spurgeon one time, Spurgeon, you, you believe that God has chosen a people to himself, don't you? Yes. But yet you preach every single sermon that men who and women who are there ought to come to faith in Christ and they ought to trust Christ right now. How do you reconcile those two? Spurgeon said, I don't try to reconcile those two because I, I don't try to reconcile friends. And those are friendly truths of Scripture, friendly truths of the Word of God. So Paul said, I want you to understand, God has not failed. God is calling a people, a remnant to himself. Out of Israel, yes, but also from the Gentile nations. Do you realize the Jews failed in their commission in the Old Testament? We think about the Jews as being this, this chosen people who just kind of hang with one another and never deal with anybody else. But, but Abraham made clear the promise of God to him was that he would be a blessing to the nations, that all the nations would hear because of him. And yet they said in their way, no, we're keeping the law, we're trying to obey the prophets, we're trying to do this. And so God has chosen us, sorry about that. If you're not part of our ethnic Jewish nation. And, and Paul said, God has not failed. God has been carrying out his commission, his plan all along. We're just seeing it more full-blown in these days. His plan and his purpose is confirmed through the cross of Jesus Christ. Another one might object, Paul said, that God's not fair. God is even unrighteous, if you will, before he gets to the unfair. In verses 14 through 18, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whom he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And, and you look at that and you say, well, you mean God kept Pharaoh from believing? And obeying when Moses went in? Listen, Pharaoh's heart is his responsibility. It was hardened. Uh, he hated the Jews. He hated the, the, the children of Israel. He enslaved them and, and abused them and, and made them horrible. He wanted no part of their God. He wanted to have, he, he wanted to uh, he, he wanted to persecute them and he wanted them to do his bidding, and that was all. And he worshiped false gods in contrast to the to the to the Hebrew God, the true and the living God. His heart was hardened, and God used that hardened heart and hardened it to keep it hardened to, in order to, to see the glory of God prevail. Then verses 19 through 29, Paul anticipates the question, and he may have done more than anticipating it, may have had some around there say, and he said, Will you say to me then, why does God still find fault? Who can resist his will? And then he says, Who are you, O man, to question God? 
Who are you to argue with God? Who are you to say to God, God, you're not fair? And as I said two weeks ago, aren't we glad that God's not fair? Aren't we glad that God is gracious and righteous and merciful? Aren't we glad that God gives us not what we deserve, but what we don't deserve and doesn't give us what we deserve? I mean, there's a twofold thing there. He shows mercy, then he gives grace. I mean, I'm so thankful to God that he doesn't look down Bill Haynes and said, Bill, you know, you know what you really deserve. I'm going to give you what you deserve. But rather, he shows grace. We don't, we don't argue with God. Paul says, don't, the, the clay can't argue with the potter. We, we, don't, we don't question. We just need to see what God has said is true and believe that truth to be true and follow it. But the real problem that the Jews were having in that day was why are Gentiles being declared righteous and some Jews aren't? Why are, why are the Gentiles accepted and other Jews and Jews are being rejected. Now, not all Jews are being rejected. Paul makes that clear because he says, I am one. But he said, listen, it was because of his mercy. It was because of his grace. It was because of his work in our life. That's why I titled this sermon, Surprised by Righteousness Today. And we sang about that. We, we sang about praising and glorifying the name of our Lord who has done in us what we could not do for ourselves. Who has redeemed us because of his great mercy and and graciousness, and, and has done all this. And, and so in these verses, I want you to look at what Paul says in quoting Isaiah primarily in verses, well, let's start in verse 27. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out His sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us an offspring, had not left us a heritage, the Lord of hosts had not left us an offspring, which is the very Son of God, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Isaiah 1, 9, we would have just been wallowing in our sin and we would have not known what to do with it. Then in verses 30 through 33, the real crux of what we want to talk about today. What shall we say then? What are we to say about this? How do we answer this? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued the law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching it. Hmm. Did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Whoever believes in him will stand. Whoever believes in him, we could say, will have eternal life. It's interesting that the contrast that the apostle draws here. I don't want you to miss that. Here are the Jews 
who are pursuing the law. The law is the character of God. It reflects the character of God. The law is showing what perfection is. It's perfection in God. The law is saying, this is what God has said you shall do and you shall not do. And and Jews are pursuing that law, even the minor laws, as much as they can. Why, they keep the Sabbath. They, They plan it out sometimes so that they can really break the Sabbath, but be able to keep the the, the letter of the law, but they miss the whole spirit of the law. They, they tithe, they give of their tithes. Even down, Jesus said to the Pharisees, you even tithe the mint and the kumum. You get down to the very smallest item and you make sure that you've given a 10% of the mint you have or anything else you have. You go to the holy days, you offer sacrifice. Even today, many Jews who are just ethnic Jews who have no understanding of of, of God's righteousness and God's gospel at all, they still go back to the, to the synagogues. They go back to the place of worship on the holy days as a ritual of their heritage, not as a religious practice or pursuit. But they feel like we're doing that very thing that we were told to do, and so by doing that, we have earned our righteousness. Then you got those Gentiles. You got those Gentiles who are out there just disobeying God's law. They have no concern for God's law. They have no, no desire to go to the synagogues because they wouldn't even be let into the worship places. They have no desire to, to, to somehow try to obey the law of God. They just obey their own law. They do what they want to do. They worship who they want to worship. And they, they carry out and many times their their, their sin in debauchery over and over and over again. And yet, some of those Gentiles find themselves in the covenant people of God, not because of their righteousness, because of a righteousness that has been granted to them in Jesus Christ. Not, not a righteousness they can say, hey, I did this puff out my chest and say, God, aren't you proud of me? God, aren't I doing a good thing for you? No, they found themselves humbled. I I think about the Apostle Paul, who said in the passage that, that Pastor Michael read this morning, you know, he came in the world to save sinners, among whom I am the chief of sinners. I think about the Apostle Paul. He says he was the chief of sinners, understanding that is post-conversion. But do you think before his conversion, he thought he was the chief of sinners? No. Read Philippians chapter 3. I won't read that for you, but it gives his spiritual heritage there. I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I was a tribe of Benjamin. As to the law, I was found perfect. I did everything just right. I did everything that I thought God prescribed in his word. If I saw it, I did it to the best of my ability. I, I, was, I was perfect in the eyes of men. Remember, in Philippians, he He makes implication. Nobody can point a finger at me and say, Paul, you violated God's law at any point. Yet now writing to Timothy, probably about 30 or so years after his conversion, he writes to Timothy and he says, we know this truth to be true. God sent Christ into the world. He came into the world to save sinners. And by the way, I'm the chief among them. And the implication there to finish that statement is I'm the chief among them and he saved me. 
So if he saved me, who can he save? Nobody's so hard. Nobody's so dead. We're all dead before Christ. That God can't in Christ by grace and by his mercy redeem us. That's why we never give up on our friends. We can't convince our friends to become Christians. I can't convince you to become a Christian. You're not a Christian here today. But I can appeal to you and call to you to come to faith in Christ, to trust in Jesus Christ. And you say, well, Bill, Paul talks about chosen here and elect here and all this. How do I know I am one? Do you want Christ? It's a simple question. Not do you want fire insurance from hell. Not do you want to have some kind of better life now and think that's going to give you your best life now or something. But do you want Jesus? Do you want a relationship with him? Paul would indicate that those who are not a part of God's covenant people don't want that. Those whom he's not working in don't want that. They just want to pursue their own pleasure, their own life. Paul says those Gentiles were that way, and here they are. They have been surprised by righteousness. They're included in God's covenant. They didn't pursue it. He pursued them. Israel, who pursued the law, didn't reach the law. They couldn't attain it because of their sinfulness. But yet they refused to, by faith, trust in the one who came as a fulfillment of the law in totality and lived a perfect life and died in the place of all who believe, of all who put their trust and their faith in Christ. I love what Edwards, in his application to a sermon on, on this text, Jonathan Edwards. There's another class on Jonathan Edwards at night, by Pastor Michael. In the last part of his sermon, the, the Puritans always had a, a way of preaching that were kind, was kind of fascinating, and Edwards followed that. He, he, gave the, uh, he gave the premise of what he was going to say, and then he dealt with the doctrine, and then he made the application. Not a bad way to preach. And the application that... that Edwards made on this passage, I think, is instructive for us tonight. So I'll steal from him today, and I want you to hear him, but it's exactly what I'd want you to hear. He starts out with these points of application. He said, when we look at this passage that I'm calling Surprised by Righteousness, the, and this whole chapter 9, really, we learn from this how, absolute we, how absolutely we are dependent on God in the great matter of the, of the salvation of our souls. We learn from this how absolutely, totally dependent we are upon God. God doesn't say, you know, you've done, I don't know, 30% righteousness, and so I'll accept that 30% righteousness and see you 70% righteousness, and, and now you're okay. No, no, God sees our 100% unrighteousness, and says, wait a minute, I'm going to redeem you by the blood of my son, and I'm going to cover your unrighteousness in the absolute perfect righteousness of Christ. And so these passages teach us that we are absolutely dependent on God for our salvation. Can't do it on our own. The Jews couldn't do it on their own. And we Gentiles certainly can't do it on our own by somehow saying, well, we'll be good Jews and follow the law. God saves 
sinners. It's the great truth of what Paul and what the Gospels and what really the whole of the Bible is, even back to Jonah, when Jonah simply said, salvation is of the Lord. We want to argue, well, why are some saved and why are others not saved? And don't, don't argue those points. That's not the issue. The issue is, thanks be to God, I'm dependent on Him and He has redeemed me by the blood of His Son and I trust in Him to keep me. Listen, it's only those who recognize their dependence on God that can sing that great hymn that we sang, It is well with my soul. It's only when you realize you're totally dependent on the living God. Second thing that Edwards said we ought to take from this, this passage is this. We should adore the absolute sovereignty of God with great humility. With great humility. If we're totally dependent upon Him, and He is absolutely sovereign over all things, He is the Creator and the Redeemer and the Sustainer, the sovereign God of all eternity, then we should adore Him as such, not as some of Paul's distractors, detractors try to argue with Him, but just adore Him. Fall on our face before Him. Worship Him. Not try to figure out His plans and His purposes other than saying, Lord, make me a part of that. And, and we do that with great humility. I can never say to somebody, ha, ha, ha. You pagan sinner, I'm chosen, you're not. We act that way sometimes, don't we? We act like we're better than somebody else. We act like we got something more than somebody else. Well, we do have something more, but we're to share that with them. Before I decided to pray for the convention this morning, the pastoral prayer, I, I, I really wanted, and I'll do this in the next couple of weeks, I wanted us to just have a time of prayer for our friends. And our family, family members that don't know Christ. To just come before God and, and say, God, we've tried to convince them. We've tried to change their mind. We've tried to show them the truth. And they, they're not listening to us. Oh, God, would you do two things? Would you give me more opportunity to lovingly share your gospel with them? And secondly, would you open their eyes, open their hearts? You do your work in them that only you can do. We humble ourselves and say, I can't do it. We recognize what Paul said. And, and again, read these verses not through Calvinistic, Arminian, Pelagian, whatever eyes. Don't, don't, don't come to it with a preconceived notion. Just read it as God's word to strengthen us and to humble us in his presence. Thirdly, Edward said, if you are saved, you are to attribute it to sovereign grace alone and give all praise to God. I love what Paul said to Timothy. I didn't mark this. It's going to be a second to find it. But here, what Paul said to Timothy, that passage that Pastor Michael read. If you've got your Bibles, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Read that passage and, and talking about the him being the chief of sinners, he's the foremost of sinners. He received mercy for this reason, that in me, the foremost, Jesus Christ, who is the foremost, might display perfect patience as an example of those who are believing him for eternal life. In verse 17, 
to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. When we are saved, we need to attribute it to God's grace alone. We don't need to attribute it to our intelligence and our abilities and our goodness and our righteousness because we had none of that. But attribute it to God and God alone and give Him praise. You know, that's what I picture every Sunday morning when we come together. I picture us coming through those doors in the back, taking our seats, thinking about worship, not about the ball game, not about the... Not about what's on the dinner table or not about what we're going to do here, but thinking about how we're going to worship the living God. And Paul says, what you do is you give him all praise. Give all praise to God for what he's done. Every Sunday, when we sing, we sing praises to God. But when we sit and listen or sit and pray or sit and hear Scripture read or, what, or stand and hear Scripture, whatever we're doing, there ought to always be that cognizant reality that Christ came to the world to save sinners and I, like Paul, are among the chief of sinners. Do you think Paul was surprised by righteousness on the road to Damascus? You think he was surprised? He thought he was doing everything right, folks. He thought he had this religion thing down to a pat in such a way that God was well pleased with him and, and would do absolutely anything Paul wanted and give him every good thing he could think of because Paul thought, I am a righteous man in the eyes of men. And so I must be in the eyes of God. So he goes to, he's on his way to Damascus. He's on his way to persecute the church. He's on the way to throw people in jail and maybe even kill them because of blasphemy, speaking against the law of Moses, speaking against righteousness as found in the law. He's on his way there, and he's going to put an end, if he can, to this, this the way, the, the way of Christ. He's going to do everything he can, put an end to it. And, and Paul's riding along, and, and, and his group is with him, and, and they're on their way under orders from the temple to do this. And all of a sudden, a bright light shines, and a voice comes from heaven and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he's struck blind, knocked down to the ground, and he hears that voice. He says, who are you, basically? The Lord Jesus began to work in his life. Let me tell you something. Paul thought he was so righteous, and God showed him he was so unrighteous, and God showed him on that Damascus road that righteousness is a grace gift from God. In Jesus Christ. So if you're saved, thank Him for His grace. Give all praise to Him. Take no praise or credit for yourself. We we human creatures love to take credit, don't we? We love to take credit. We love to be recognized. We love to be told we are really good people. Your pastor can't say that. A sinner saved by his grace. And with that, I have to give him all praise. The final thing Edward said was this. Learn how much cause you have 
to admire the grace of God, which stooped to save you. Specifically, the utterly unbound, unconstrained, free, and sovereign grace of God has stooped down to bind us with Him in covenant relationship. And we ought to desire that for everybody we care anything about. We ought to pray for that. We ought to share the gospel. Because it's through the gospel and God's grace only that salvation comes. Edwards did make one other point, which I think is clear. I guess it was a part of the application. He he said that one thing, we need to make use of passages like Romans chapter 9, the doctrine that's there, the teaching that is there, to guard those who seek salvation by two extreme measures. One, obviously, the one who seeks righteousness or seeks salvation through legalism and and thinks they can somehow make God happy enough and outbalance the scales of, of right and wrong and good and evil and righteousness and unrighteousness and somehow tilt it just righteous enough that God would save us. That's legalism. The Jews were guilty of it in Jesus' day, in Paul's day, and and we're guilty of it today in Baptist day. We need to guard against that. Yes, when a person is saved by God's grace and given the righteousness of Christ, it affects how we live. It affects how we treat people. It affects how we love. It affects our righteousness. It is, a, it is a, an imputed righteousness, but it becomes an active righteousness in our life. Not perfectly, but an active righteousness that works itself out. But legalism, following rules, will never lead to salvation. It, it also will guard us against presumption and discouragement. Presumption that says, well, I'm, you know, The Jews were very presumptuous. Well, certainly we're right with God because we do all the right things and and we are are of the covenant people of God, the Jews. Sure, we presume upon God. Sometimes we presume upon God's grace. Sometimes we say, well, I've made a decision, I've made a profession, you know, I've done all the right things. I've been baptized, uh, I go to church, I I give, I I do all these things. And so surely those things show that I'm righteous. But our desire is not to know Him. Our desire is not to worship Him. I posted an article someone wrote a few weeks ago entitled, you know, Sunday, worship, church ought to be your excuse for skipping everything else. In our day, it's just the opposite. Everything else is our excuse for, for skipping worship because there's not, that, there's not that binding, drawing, piercing desire that I must worship Him or I die. But I'm okay because I made a decision. And I'm living a life in sin and disobedience 
a life that is not a righteousness, that is from Christ. But I'm okay because I made a decision. I did something. I went through baptismal waters. I did something. Paul just wants us to recognize, and and Edwards is making clear here that we need to understand we cannot presume upon the grace of God. If God's grace is at work in our life, God's grace is changing our lives. It's called sanctification. It's called moving us toward holiness. And, And we may read these verses and we may say, yeah, but what about? And we go to another passage and say, does that not contradict that? Let me tell you something. There is no contradictory words in the Word of God. They're complementary words. They complement one another. They they support one another. Now, in our puny minds, we may say, oh, that contradicts. Then dig deeper, because it doesn't. Dig deeper in what God is trying to teach us. To give Him praise and honor. To glorify Him in order that we might be changed into His likeness. So I wonder, when were you surprised by righteousness? When were you surprised by grace? When did God just kind of say to you, hey, playing these games or living for yourself or trying trying to just be a hedonist, not working I call you to myself I give you my grace my mercy my love my spirit so that I take you out of that world of selfishness and self-centeredness that you're living in and I place you into my family my kingdom Paul said to the Ephesians, we were all dead, not ill, not puny. We were all dead, D-E-A-D, dead, in our sins and in our trespasses. But God, but God being rich in mercy has saved us by his son can, can you thank him for that this morning can, can you in your heart from your very soul say Lord I praise you for what you did that I could not do Recognize His hand in your life, not just your good works or religious feelings. Can you praise Him? Can you worship Him in spirit and truth? Can you you let go of credit and give glory to Him? Pray with me.